Now, let me just say up top, 9 a.m. was live, y'all, all right? So we're going to dive into God's word today, and I, 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 need your, I, need your, I need you to warm up your amens or whatever, because we're going to see how God moved then and how God wants to move in our lives today. And I want to give you a little background. We're going to dive right in, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Even though we're only going to work our way through the first four verses of Nehemiah, I want to catch you up uh, on Nehemiah. Now, Ezra Nehemiah was actually one scroll in the original canon of scriptures, one book of the Bible in two parts, and later it was separated into two different books. Now, normally I would want us to to study Ezra Nehemiah kind of all together as one unit, but as we prayed and processed how God is working in our church right now, we thought that Nehemiah's story in particular would be helpful for us to work through. Now, in order to understand what's happening in Nehemiah, you got to understand some of the history that led up to this point. And so uh, just bear with me. We're going to do a little Old Testament, history, uh, Old Testament history lesson for a minute for those of you that may not be as familiar with the Bible. But I'm sure you kind of heard of Jerusalem in, in the Old Testament. This was kind of the center of God's kind of redemptive activity among his People And this was the place where the temple was. It was the symbol of God's presence on earth in the midst of his people. And the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by walls until 586 B.C., when the Babylonians overtake Jerusalem, they completely decimate the city and they take the remaining Jews away into Babylonian captivity. And throughout that time of captivity, There were all kinds of prophets. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, the Old Testament, the book of kind of Ezra Nehemiah is really one of the last historical books in the kind of story of redemptive history in the Bible. Now, there's a bunch of other books after that in our modern day Old Testament, but those you'll notice are written by people who have names, right? And these are prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, many of whom are actually ministering and prophesying during the time that we're reading about, the time of the exile. And so you see prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah that prophesy of a day when God will restore his people back to Jerusalem. Then in 539 BC, the Persians come on the scene. They conquer the Babylonians and they allow the Jews, just like God promised, to return to Jerusalem. Only a small percentage of people decide to move back. An initial group of about 50,000, which was actually a small percentage uh, relative to the number of Jews that were in exile at that point. And then a second group of about three to 5,000 that were led by Ezra the priest moved back to Jerusalem and the surrounding region. And they make some progress. In fact, they eventually rebuild the temple in 516 BC. But for the most part, the city is still in ruins. And then in 444 BC, we meet a man named Nehemiah. And that's where we want to pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. And so if you've got your own copy of the Bible, meet me there in Nehemiah chapter 1. Or if you don't have a copy of the Bible here or wherever you're watching from, we'll have the verses up on the screen for you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Starts this way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, pause there for a moment. 
So the book of Nehemiah is, in our modern Bibles, is essentially Nehemiah's memoirs, right, which were most likely compiled and, and published by Ezra, the priest. And we don't know much information about Nehemiah's background, but here's a few things that we do know about him. Uh, number one, we just saw his father was Hakaliah. We, we don't know anything about Hakaliah really, uh, but I think the purpose of including that little detail is just to establish Nehemiah's Jewish lineage. Second thing we know is that Nehemiah was born in exile. As far as we know, he's never been to Jerusalem. He, he never experienced Israel in its heyday, but he's, he's connected, right, to the heritage of his people. The third thing we know about Nehemiah is that he had risen to a prominent position in the Persian government. And you see that at the end of chapter one, verse 11, Nehemiah says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now that doesn't really sound important, but the cupbearer was one of the highest and most trusted officials in the king's court. The title comes from the fact that this person was responsible for serving the wine and kind of preparing the royal table. And sometimes in high security situations, this person might even taste the wine before the king would drink it just to make sure it hadn't been poisoned, which isn't a good look, right, if that's, if that's your job. And, and that sounds crazy to us, right, because we think nobody would actually want that job. But listen, many of you actually have jobs like this. Now, I don't know what's coming to your mind as you're laughing, <laughs> right? Uh, but here's what I mean, right? Many of you have jobs like this where you intentionally put yourself in harm's way in order to protect the people you serve. I think about those of you, for example, in our church who are in the Secret Service or Capitol Police. This is what you do. This is what Nehemiah did, and this was actually a very noble and prominent position to have. This is one of the highest security clearances in the entire Persian government. All that to say, Nehemiah has a very high profile and demanding job. And it continues here. It says, now in the, it happened in the month of Kislev, that's about our mid-November to mid-December, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign over Persia, Nehemiah says, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa is uh, and was one of the capital cities in ancient Persia, what is basically now southwestern Iran. And the citadel was the royal fortress where the king lived during the winter. And just a quick side note, these details are important because, listen, the Bible isn't just a collection of religious myths and moral fables. No, the Bible is the supernatural revelation of God's work in time and space. It's real history about a real God working in and through real people. And so Nehemiah here is doing pretty well for himself. I mean, he's, he's in Politico's top 40 under 40. Like, I don't actually know how, how old he was, but just follow me, right? He's, he's, he's in a nice loft apartment in, in the city. He, he has insider access to all the top spots and exclusive events. But then he gets some news that changes the course of his life. 
he writes that verse two, Han and I, one of my brothers, one of his blood brothers came with certain men from Judah. So apparently Han and I had gone with the exiles to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had stayed back in the Persian government and, and Judah was the broader region where the city of Jerusalem was. And Nehemiah begins to inquire. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. In other words, how are they doing? How are things going? Verse three, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. He said, Nehemiah, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, remember, Jerusalem had been completely destroyed about 140 years earlier in 586 B.C. But more recently, the people had tried to start rebuilding the walls. You remember 516 BC, they were able to rebuild the temples. They've now started to try to rebuild the city walls, but because of political pressure, the king forced them to stop and the government tore down the little progress that they had made. And as we celebrate Black History Month, as I was reading this, I just I thought to myself, my mind immediately went to the Tulsa massacre of 1921. Some of you know the story. Greenwood District, right, of Tulsa, 1921. They called it Black Wall Street. It's the peak kind of coming out of the reconstruction period, right? Black owned businesses just lining the street of this district. And then after a series of events, mobs bomb and begin to completely destroy the city. They killed more than 300 African-Americans. They looted and burned to the ground. 40 square blocks of 1,265 African-American homes, including hospitals, schools, and churches, and they destroyed 150 businesses. And as I was just reflecting on that and thinking, what was it like for those people as they kind of came back into the city and wondered, how are we going to rebuild our lives? How do we recover after everything we've lost? I thought to myself, that must have been how the ancient Jews felt here as they tried to rebuild the Jerusalem walls and restart their lives. Now, in ancient times, it's, it's, it's hard to overemphasize how important city walls were. For us in 2024, we don't really get it, but we, we kind of put the pieces together, right? That the walls would have been extremely important for security purposes. I mean, you just think about it. Without walls, the people of the city are, they're just sitting ducks, right? They're just vulnerable to all kinds of attacks. But here's what you got to understand. That the walls not only provided needed security, but in this context, they also represented their national and spiritual identity. Like this was deep for them. You see, for the ancient Jews, Jerusalem was the city of David. Like it was the holy headquarters of God's presence among his people. And so the safety and prosperity of Jerusalem represented the favor and faithfulness of God. But here they are, a fledgling remnant, scraping by to survive. And the physical condition of the city represented 
the shameful spiritual and political condition of the covenant community. And that's why the people are described in verse three as not just in great trouble, but also in great shame. As other translations put it, in great trouble and disgrace. You think about it. If they're supposed to be God's chosen people, then what do these burned and broken walls say, not just about them, but about their God? These people have made some bold claims, y'all. They they had claimed in a polytheistic culture, they had made the bold claim that the God of Israel was the only one true God. And so you think about the headlines and the social media posts and the memes that must have been circulating throughout the region. Where is their God now? Is the God they believe in even real? Is Yahweh really the sovereign Lord, the almighty creator? Or is he just another mythological deity like all the rest of the pagan gods? See, God's people weren't just living in grave danger. They were living in global disgrace. And when Nehemiah hears about it, it knocks the wind out of him. Verse 4. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is overwhelmed with a sense that somebody has to do something about this. And so he goes into a season of concentrated prayer and fasting to seek God and to make himself available for however God might want to use him. And God willing, we'll pick up the story there in verse five next week. I know that's extraordinarily frustrating, but you got to come back. Got to come back. Or just read your Bible, just read the rest, right? I want us to stop here for today because I think the beginning of Nehemiah's story raises a significant question that I think all of us need to wrestle with. This is a question that could literally change the course of your life. I'm not using hyperbole. I believe this question could literally change the entire course of your life. It could change your career. It could change your major at school. It could change how you spend your time and your money, or it could simply change the way you see the things that God has already called you to do. But before I get to that question, I want you to think about Nehemiah. Listen, I'm a, I'm a preacher. You know we can't just give you the question right up front. We've got to build the suspense. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> think about Nehemiah just for a second. Listen, we've already seen that Nehemiah is doing well for himself. Now, granted, he'd rather not be under the oppressive rule of a pagan empire. But all things considered, he's living the good life. He's Jewish, but he's learned how to assimilate and navigate the dominant culture in order to not just survive, but to thrive. And all he has to do now is lay low and keep his boss happy and just hope to God that there's no poison in one of those cups, right? (laughs) He just needs to keep his spiritual life separate from his professional life. Don't make any waves. 
just coast. And put yourself in his shoes. Isn't it tempting to do just that? To cling to our comfort, to protect our peace, to insulate ourselves from the painful realities of the people around us. And I love this snapshot of Nehemiah's life because he could have just asked a few questions and then just kind of expressed his solidarity and just moved on with his life. But what does he do? Bible tells us he sits down and he weeps. He weeps. He didn't just let it go in one ear and out the other. He didn't just let it be about those issues. No, he stops, he pauses, he allows himself to feel what God wants him to feel, to feel the weight of the burden that's on God's heart. He holds this before God in prayer. Wrestles with how God might want him to be involved. And listen, sometimes, y'all, sometimes, especially in this D.C. culture, we can be moving so fast and preoccupied with our own plans that we miss the invitation to get involved in God's plan. And what's interesting is that we never actually read about God explicitly commanding Nehemiah to do anything. This this is not one of those dramatic call experiences like we read with other people in the Bible. Think about Moses in the burning bush, right? This This is not what we see happen in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah simply heard about a problem. And then as you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 7, verse 5, you see this key phrase that God put it into his heart to do something about it. In other words, he has this growing conviction, this God-given desire to actually get involved. And I think that sense of calling in his heart probably sounded like it probably started with a question like, what can I do? As he's praying, as he's reflecting and processing and allowing himself to feel the reality of what other people around him are actually feeling, the pain that, and brokenness that he sees around him, I think his processing probably just started with a simple question. What can I do? And that's a great question to ask. But that question only gets you so far. Because if we start with our own ability, our own resources, our own capability, then we'll inevitably be faced with our own limitations. And so I think at some point that question began to evolve and expand. And rather than simply asking, what can I do? I think Nehemiah in prayer began to ask the question, what could God do? Or what could God do? As he spent that time in prayer, as he spent that time rehearsing and reminding himself of the God of heaven who is sovereign over all things and his faith began to rise, I think he shifted simply from what can I do to what could God do? Because guess what, y'all? God is not limited by our limitations. 
He's not limited by our limitations. And I think Nehemiah began to wrestle with that question. I don't know how I'm going to get permission to take extended leave. I don't know where I'm going to get the resources to do all this work. But what could God do if I was willing to step out in faith and make myself available to him? And I think that little kindling of a question is what grew in his heart and spread like wildfire throughout the community as they rallied together to build something, listen, that would outlast them and bring God glory for generations to come. And that's the question that we as pastors and elders want to pray about together, want you to pray about and for us to dream about as we walk through the book of Nehemiah together, Lord willing, over these next weeks and months. What could God do? What could he do if we genuinely sought him and made ourselves available forever uh, for however he wants to use us? Think about it. What could God do in our church? I said, I know some of you are newer to our church, but I can't help but think about all the powerful ways that God has worked throughout our church's history. Listen, some of you have been here longer than I have, but listen, I think about just this building that we're in right now here at Tyson's. Listen, some of you remember just acquiring this building was a miracle in and of itself. But now, listen, to have such a significant resource in such a strategic location and listen, with no debt is an incredible miracle. I told y'all 9 a.m. was live, right? 9 a.m. was live. This is what God has done. And listen, listen. So many of you before my time had the great privilege of participating in this miracle. Think about Jill's house right here on the property and all the opposition that we as a church had to face in the county zoning process in order to build that facility that now serves so many kids with disabilities every week and provides much needed respite to their families. And listen, and we get to do all of it in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus with, with people who are primarily not Christians, have never even visited McLean Bible Church, but are so thankful that we have pulled our resources together in order to bring blessing to them and to their kids. This is what God has done in our church. And listen, there's so much more I could say. Like, I promise you, I could walk through just so many different ways that God has powerfully moved in our church. We have seen him work in so many powerful ways in the past, and not just in buying buildings and starting new programs, but in seeing countless people's lives transformed by the gospel. God has been at work. So can I try something real quick? Y'all, I told you I'm a new... Arlington, can you help us out? Can I try something real quick? Okay, all right. Let me try something real quick. Listen, if you've come to faith through this church, would you just raise your hand real quick? Just raise your hand. Yeah, we praise God for what he's done in your life. It's a miracle that you know God, that you love him. You're sitting in church worshiping him. It's a miracle for all of us. 
Listen, let me ask, if, if, if you've grown in your understanding of and love for God's word through this church, would you raise your hand? Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Listen, many of you know I've been at this church for 17 years in April, and it's always been the same. Talk to our elders, right, when we do membership interviews, right? It has always been the same. The number one pe- thing people say they love about McLean Bible Church is our faithful proclamation to God's word. It has always been that way, and Lord willing, it will always be that way. This is the work of God. Let me, let me ask you, if you've gone through a difficult time in your life, And you've experienced the care and compassion of God through God's people and through the ministry of this church. Would you raise your hand? Yeah. We thank God for you. And listen, we thank God for the people around you in your church groups and ministries and friends that you've made in this church family, our benevolence ministry that have come alongside you to care for you and provide for you. Listen, if you've discovered or grown in your spiritual gifts through this church, would you raise your hand? Yeah, yeah, praise God, praise God. I know that was a light golf type because y'all like, because the next thing you're going to ask me to do is actually serve with those spiritual gifts. No, we're going to wait till like week three in this series before we get there, all right? Listen, all right, I'm going out on a limb here, okay? If you've met your spouse in this church, would you raise your hand? Oh, I see, I see a couple people. Shout out, y'all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, he's still in the miracle working business. He is. If you've met your spouse in this church, but they just don't know it yet, would you raise, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Just do what Nehemiah did. Just take it to prayer. Wait on the Lord. Listen, can we just take... A a, a moment. Can we take a moment here and at all of our locations and can we give God praise for all the ways that he has worked in the life of our church? Yes, God, we praise you for your work. God has been at work in our church. But here's the question. What about now? What about now? Is our church just a monument of God's power in the past, or are we going to be a fresh movement of the power of God for a new generation? Because listen, listen, because this generation is asking different questions, and our current culture is presenting different challenges. Back in September, I preached a message called a, new ch- a Church for a New Generation. And I talked about three things happening in our culture that seem to paint a pretty bleak picture for the future of the church. And I don't have time to dive into all of it. I'll just give you a quick quick summary. You can go back and listen to that message. But number one is increasing secularization. We see that all throughout our culture. You say, well, what do you mean by secularization? Well, I simply mean this, the systematic denial of God. I don't just mean like individuals who don't believe in God. Secularization is a process. It is the systematic denial of God, the pushing out of God in those who believe in God from the public square. We see it all over our culture in all kinds of areas that affect all kinds of people and all kinds of issues. Some people see religion as dangerous. And listen, I get it. There's been some crazy people out here in the name of God. 
Most people see religion as irrelevant. I mentioned this in that sermon back in September. I was talking to to, uh, Donnie Cohn, our student director here at Tyson's, and he gave me this info. He said, right now, half of 50 to 64-year-old Americans believe in a God who hears and answers prayer. That's half of of Americans, 50 to 64. They believe in a God who hears and answers prayer. Only 30% of 18 to 29-year-olds right now believe that. That's a 20-point drop in barely more than a generation. A recent study found that among young adults who attended church regularly at some point in high school, only 40% were still attending at age 19. That is a 60% drop-off before they even get out of college. About 35% of Gen Z directly describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or none. That's up from 20% of baby boomers. Listen, these are the effects of the systematic denial of God in our culture. And that is paired with not just increasing secularization, but increasing diversity in our culture, which is beautiful in a lot of ways, but presents some real challenges. We see this in our culture, but we also see it in the church. A recent study showed that one out of three evangelicals are people of color. That's different than the dominant narrative that we see in the media. One out of three. Listen, not evangelical in terms of a, of a political voting block, but evangelical in terms of orthodox biblical beliefs. And the reason I mention that and the reason why this is so interesting to social analysts is because they don't care about the future of the church, but, but they're interested because here's the thing. All these different people tend to vote differently. I remember sitting on a panel back in 2016, and, uh, and what's that, like eight years ago? I was like 16 at the time, and, or at least I, I felt like I was 16 sitting on this panel. I don't know why they invited me to sit on a panel with a bunch, basically a convention for a bunch of religion reporters to help them understand American Christianity, right? But I'm on this panel. I'll never forget sitting beside this Asian-American sister, older woman in the faith, and I remember what she said. She had been a part of one of the first Uh, delegations of Asian American Christians to meet with the president of the United States. And when they got together to process, what do we want to bring before the president? They came up with two issues, two issues that they wanted to bring before the president. You know what they were? Immigration and human trafficking. Because of the ways it just uniquely and disproportionately affected their community. And I remember it just being a light bulb moment for me. So many different kinds of people who share the same core theological convictions, but might actually have different political priorities. Then you couple that with the increasing polarization that we see in our culture. Where rather than disagreeing with one another charitably, We actually go into these silos at the extremes, and it produces, right, this environment of hostility. And we not only see it in our culture and in political life, quite frankly, we've even seen it in our church. I think all of that has been the the, the real undercurrent of the conflict we've walked through as a church over the past couple of years. And there's a question that arises in the midst of all of this. This is, this is what the religion reporters are asking about, the social analysts are asking about, and maybe many of you. Here's the question. Can this really work? 
Like you look around this room right now. Look around the room at your different locations. Think about what God has been pu- pulling together in this church family. And the question as we look at everything we just talked about in our culture and the odds stacked up against the church, the question is, will this really work? You know what? I don't know. But I say, let's find out. I say, let's find out. Can the church really be effective in this environment? And listen, here's, here's, here's what I say. I say, I'd love for our church to be a part of answering that question. Can the church really be effective in this kind of environment? And listen, part of my answer is this. If the church could be effective in the Roman Empire then certainly the church can be effective in whatever environment we find ourselves in. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit that filled and empowered the the early church is the same Holy Spirit that is living inside of every single one of us as followers of Jesus. The same spirit that enabled that little fledgling group of disciples to turn the Roman Empire upside down is the same Holy Spirit that fills us right now in the DMV. And so listen, this is our confidence as we think about our culture, that the church is not primarily about something we do. The church is primarily about something God is doing through us. And so listen, can I just make one simple, as humble announcement? Remember, I told you I need your help. Can I make? All right. McLean Bible Church, God is not done. God is not done. He's not done. There's still work that he has for us to do that he wants to do through us as a church family. There are people who need to be discipled and marriages that need to be supported, ministries that need to be organized, strategies that need to be developed, leaders that need to be trained, kids that need to be taught, college students that need to be reached, elderly that need to be reminded that they still matter to God and to us. Listen, there's people walking through our doors and watching online every single week struggling with sin, addiction, depression, loneliness, grief, anxiety, financial crises. I could go on and on. Here's my point, church. Our work is not done because God's work is not done. And listen, he's brought you here and given you gifts, abilities, and resources to contribute as a part of his church. What could God do in our church? But not just in our church. What could God do in our city? What could he do in our city? And listen, if you've ever felt like church is irrelevant to the world you work in every day, then this is where I want you to lean in for a minute. Because I want you to see something that jumped out at me while I was studying this week. Listen, it's interesting to compare Nehemiah's introduction with Ezra's introduction. And I never thought about this before this week. Let me show you. Ezra's introduction. Remember, he's the priest, right, that led that second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, 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 we're going to keep going, the son of, 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 we're at Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia, which eventually became Persia, 
He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, look at Nehemiah's intro back in Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. That's all he gets. Now, I don't want to read too much into that, but I do think it highlights something pretty significant. You see, we talked about how Nehemiah has an influential secular job, but he doesn't have the same religious pedigree as Ezra. He's not a priest. He doesn't have a degree in theology. He loves God, but he doesn't feel called to be a Bible teacher or a pastor. And listen, I think this is important to point out because I found that a lot of people in church, a lot of you feel like your secular job, your secular job doesn't really matter in the kingdom of God. And you often struggle to see what contribution you can really make. But I want you to just think about this for a second. God's people weren't living in a theocratic Jewish kingdom anymore. They're now living in a pluralistic non-Jewish culture where their priests and prophets don't have much credibility and influence. But you know who does have credibility and influence? Nehemiah, the man with the secular job. The one who has the relationships and professional expertise that Ezra will never have. So listen, listen, here's why this is important, because in every generation, God always places people in strategic positions as representatives of his kingdom. You think about Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, Esther in Persia. And listen, hear me. This is where I want you to lean in. You may not be called to be a pastor, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a strategic partner for the spread of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom. And listen to me, you have got to stop thinking about church as a religious break from your everyday life and start thinking about the church as the headquarters, the base camp, the equipping station for the kingdom work that God has called you to do. Listen, this, this is, I started doing this thing a few years ago where I try to get lunch with different people in our church who work in different sectors of society, and I had the same list of questions. What do you do? What does your typical day look like? What are some of the challenges you face as a Christian in your career? Do you, does your office need a chaplain so I can get some of those perks that you get in your business, right? That was a joke, all right? But it's just me, because listen, this is my day job. Let's be just trying to understand what is your world like? And all of our pastors do this to a certain extent, and this is one of the reasons why we plan to be intentional about equipping and empowering you to see your work as both sacred to God and strategic for the spread of the gospel. Listen, we live in one of the most strategic cities in the world. And God and his eternal wisdom already got the jump on us. He's already 10 steps ahead of us. He has already placed all of these people, all these little lights 
in every sector of society in the DMV, in the most strategic city and region in the world. He has already scattered and placed his people in strategic places and positions as representatives of his kingdom. So you can model what the kingdom of God looks like, and then you can proclaim the kingdom of God through the Gospel. Listen, there are approximately 5.6 million people in the DMV who are considered unreached. And listen, they may not be close to Jesus, but they're close to you. They're close to you. And listen, can I just make a bold statement real quick? Can I just make a bold statement? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Listen. You are way more strategic, way more strategically placed, way more likely to make an impact here in the DMV with the gospel than I am, than David Platt is, than Lon Solomon was. Why? Because we're never going to be in the rooms and relationships that you're in as a teacher, as a doctor, as, as a, a politico, as somebody who works in the military, as a homeschool teacher, in whatever you do and whatever sphere of influence the Lord calls you into, our job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And your job is to be sought in light and to be representatives of the kingdom in all the spheres of influence that the Lord has already called you into. Listen, what could God do in our city? through our combined efforts as a church and through the everyday spheres of influence that he's already placed us in. And what could God do around the world? Listen, I got to close this up. But listen, a world full of urgent physical and spiritual need. Listen, you've heard us talk about this before. There's over 17,000 different people groups around the world, approximately 7,000 of those people groups, about 3.2 billion people that are considered unreached, meaning they have little to no access to the gospel. Of that, 3,000 of, of those people groups are unengaged, meaning no one is currently trying to even get the gospel to them. And listen, we hear, especially in our church, we hear that kind of thing all the time. And my fear is that many of us hear stats like that and we just move past it. But Nehemiah didn't do that. He sat with what he was hearing and the condition of people far from him. He said, God, what do you want me to do? What could you do through me, God? I'm willing and able. I'm fully surrendered to you. Your plans are better than my plans, God. How do you want to use me? And listen, it may not be that you have to leave your job and become a missionary, but maybe God is calling you to leverage your job for the support of missionaries or for the spread of the gospel or for you to go in intentional and strategic ways to places a kind of traditional missionary would never be able to go. I think about a couple that we just sent out an oncologist and a professor who are now serving with their teenagers in the Middle East in a hard place where God has opened a door wide because of their professional expertise. I think about the ways that God has blessed so many of us in this church family with the financial resources and the strategic expertise to bring all of that to bear on the most significant 
problem that any of us could ever invest our time into. And that is the fact that there are so many people around the world who have never even heard how they can be reconciled to God and forgiven of their sin and escape the eternal wrath of God. God wants to use you. What could he do in our church? What could he do in our city? What could he do around the world? And here's where I want to land this sermon as we prepare to pray and close out. Listen, here's what I want you to sit with. What could God do in your life? What could he do? I know there's parts of your life that are, that are broken and crumbling. I get that. I understand that. But he can still use you. What could he do through you and to, to help serve and meet the physical and spiritual brokenness around you? What could he do in and through your life if you just fully yielded yourself or even asked the question, God, what could you do through me? What do you want to do through me? If you sat down with it and you allowed that to sit on your heart and you don't just keep moving with your own plans. That's what we want to process. Now, I'm going to pray, but listen, we'll see this as we study the book of Nehemiah. One of the mistakes we often make is we reduce the book of Nehemiah to a book about leadership principles. But listen, when you really think about it, when you read the whole story, it doesn't actually end well. Like, little spoiler alert here. We're going to get to this. But in fact, after all God had done, bringing them back from exile, enabling them to rebuild the city walls, stirring their hearts to confess their sin and pursue holiness. After all of that, the book ends in chapter 13 with the people drifting back into disobedience, Nehemiah throwing furniture, chasing people and ripping out their hair. I'm not making that up. That is chapter 13. And I'm going to make sure David is scheduled to preach that week. Listen, God uses Nehemiah in some incredible ways, but what we learn is that Nehemiah's leadership is just a flawed foreshadow of something better, of someone better to come. Because you'll remember as you cross over into the New Testament that Nehemiah wasn't the only leader who wept over Jerusalem. No, 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 because no, what we see in Nehemiah is that even with his leadership, even in the way that God moved in the old covenant, in the old covenant, Nehemiah was not able to address the core problem of the sinful nature, the sinful heart. And so God looks out, not just over the condition of Jerusalem, but over the entire human condition, because all of us, all of us had covenant access to God in the garden, and we've turned from him in our sin, and we've been cut off from him, living in spiritual exile, away from him, apart from him. But God was not content. He weeps over the brokenness of our sin and our suffering. And so he puts a plan into motion. And Nehemiah is swept up in the current of God's redemptive purposes, 400 years of silence, until eventually there's another leader who shows up on the scene. And his name is Jesus. And he came not just to build a city, but he came to build a community that would be a city on a hill. And how did he do it? He did it by giving his life, dying on the cross in our place for our sins. His blood is the only covering for our sins in front of the holiness and wrath of a just God. And he rose from the dead. And then he gives us his spirit as we are forgiven and trust in him. 
so that by the Spirit, he could begin gathering for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, among all peoples around the world, this covenant community that will be a light to the glory of his name. That is the work. Nehemiah was not able to completely finish the work. You and I are not able to completely finish the work. But Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It's finished. And one day he will return to finish that work. And this is the invitation that you and I have. What could God do then through us as we follow him? And maybe the first step for you is just to receive that gift of what he came to do for you, to stop and to mourn over the condition of your own sin and spiritual life and to turn to Jesus and say, I'm putting my trust in you, what you did for me as a sacrifice for my sin. And Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to lead my life and rebuild my life and forgive my sin. Save me, lead me. And he'll do that, he'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us in so many individual ways but also in so many ways in the life of our church. And Father, we thank you that you are not done, that you have invited us and called us into this great adventure of following you and being your representatives and participating in your work. And so God, we pray that you would use us in ways that exceed what we could ask for or imagine. And we pray this to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.